Hello and welcome back to Sir Thomas Mitchell Journey into the Interior of Eastern Australia. This is the journey to find the kinder. Um, and I'm up to the final chapter of this journal and the trip home, basically. We have we had arrived at the point where I considered it necessary to quit our former route and cross the open country towards the range that we might thus fall into our old track within a few days' journey of our last camp on the Namoy. This direction would cut off ten days' journey of the route outward and extended across open plains where the party would be much more secure than in the woods at a time when natives have given us so much cause to be vigilant. But these plains, however favourable, afforded only an accidental advantage for had the situations of wood and plain been reversed, we must still have endeavoured to penetrate by the route which was the most direct. February 13. Keeping the lagoon on our right, we travelled, as its winding shores permitted, towards the hills, and we thus made a good journey of ten miles in the direction of Mount Fraser. In our way, we crossed a chain of ponds which entered the lagoon from the east, and was doubtless a branch from some of the channels crossed by us in our outward journey, but it was difficult to say which from the winding course and number of those which thus intersect the country. When we had proceeded a few miles, a loud cooey was heard from the banks of the lagoon, and on perceiving smoke ascending also, I rode across to ascertain what natives were there. But although I found newly burnt grass and a tree still on fire, also many trees from which the bark had been nearly stripped, I could discover no inhabitants. These ponds coming from the eastward at length lay in our way so much that it was necessary to cross them, and having effected this at a dry part of the hollow channel, we encamped on the banks, as it was unlikely that any water might be found beyond for some distance. It now appeared very probable, from their general direction, that these were a continuation of Bombelli's ponds, named after my unfortunate courier, whose bones still lay there. That point, our present camp and meadow ponds, where I intended to strike again into our former track, formed an equilateral triangle, the length of each side being about 22 miles. I could therefore, during the next 22 miles of our route, make an excursion to the scene of pillage from any point which might be most convenient. I preferred the earliest opportunity in hopes of surprising the natives, and I accordingly prepared to set out the next morning, accompanied by Mr Finch and seven men on horseback, leaving Mr Men with eight men, equally well armed, to guard the camp. By this arrangement, the bullocks, which had been rather hard wrought, would enjoy a day's rest. I availed myself of every precaution, as far as prudence could suggest, in selecting a position for our camp and arranging the carts for defence. A better one against surprise could not have been found as it overlooked an open country for several miles on all sides. A hot wind which had blown during the day from the south brought a very gloomy sky in the evening when the wind veered to the southeast. The sunset amid clouds of a very uncommon appearance, too plainly indicating that the rain was at length coming. We had now, however, left those low levels and dense scrubs where the natives began to hang about us like hungry wolves, and I could not reflect on what it might have been the consequence had we been delayed only one week longer there without feeling grateful for our providential escape. It was obvious that had we got fast in the mud or been hemmed in by inundations, we might have been harassed on one side from the natives of the Gwydi and on the other by the plunderers of Mr Finch's party until we shared a similar fate. We had now, fortunately, arrived within sight of the hills. The country around us was open, and with these advantages, the nature of our position was so different 
that I could occupy the country, divide my party, visit the camp of Mr Finch and recover what we could from that scene of plunder. February 14. This morning it rained heavily and the dark sky promised no better weather during the day. I therefore gave up at once my intention of dividing the party here and moved the whole ford at an early hour, being desirous to push the cart to the near the hills as possible before the plains became too soft. And with this view I deferred my intended visit to the plundered camp until after the termination of another day's journey. The soil, as from experience we had reason to expect, had become very soft and the rain pouring in torrents. It became so more and more. The wheels, however, did go round, and the party followed me over a plain which scarcely supported even a tuft of grass on which I could fix my eye in steering by compass through the heavy rain. At length I distinguished half a dozen trees, toward which we toiled for several hours, and which grew, as we found when we at length got to them, beside a pond of water, the only one to be seen on these plains. There was also some grass beside it, and we encamped on its bank, placing the carts in a line at right angles to the trees, thus taking possession of all the cover from an attack that could be found. We had travelled eight miles over the open plain in a straight line, and considering the state of the earth, I was surprised that the cattle had made any progress through it. When the clouds drew up a little, I was not sorry to discover that the plain was clear of wood to a considerable distance on all sides, nor to recognise some of the hills overlooking our old route. According to the bearings of several of these, I found that the plundered camp was only 17 miles distant, and as the ground was soft that we could not move further with the carts until fair weather had again rendered it passable, I resolved to halt the party here until after my intended excursion to Bombelli's Ponds. February 15. The rain continued but not without some intermission. At one time the wind came from the north and in the evening the moon made her appearance amid fleecy clouds, which raised our hopes. February 16. The rain poured from a sky that might have alarmed Noah. The ground became a sea of mud, even within our tents we sank to the knees. No one could move about with shoes. The men accordingly waded barefooted. The water in the pond was also converted into mud. Ground crickets of an undescribed species, which perhaps may be called Grillotalpa australis, came out of the earth in great numbers. At 3pm the blue sky appeared in the west and the nimbus clouds subsided. Towards night, the wind died away and the full moon rising in a most serene sky encouraged us once more to indulge in the hope of getting home. February 17. A beautiful clear morning, but this was nevertheless a disnorm to us, owing to the impassable state of the surface of the earth. An emu came very near our tents, and by carrying a bush a la Burnham, we got several shots, without however having the good fortune to hit it. We had the satisfaction to find that the ground was drying very fast, in the evening, the mountains to the eastward were seen clearly for the first time. They appeared to be very rocky and steep, much resembling the outline of Tenerife or Madeira, and no trees appeared on the highest pinnacles. February 18. The weather continuing fine, it was now in my power to visit the unfortunate camp of Mr Finch. Leaving Mr White, therefore, in charge of ours, I proceeded this morning towards the spot, accompanied by Mr Finch and a party mounted on pack horses. We pursued a direct line, traversing every scrub in the way in expectation of surprising some of the natives. After riding six miles, we passed one of their encampments, where they appeared to have recently been as the fire was still burning. In the scrubs, we saw several flocks of kangaroos, eight or ten in each, and on the plains, we this day saw a greater number of emus than we had before fallen in with during our whole journey. Reaching at length the open plains beyond Brush Hill, I once more traced the line of that watercourse, 
which may truly be said to have saved our lives when we fell providentially when we first providentially fell in with it just as the men were beginning to sink overcome by extreme and long continued thirst to us it had afforded the happiest of camps after such a deliverance and now we were to witness in the same spot a scene of death having struck into the old track of the carts as we approached the place we found the pistol of bombelli within a foot of the track this was surprising, for although Mr Finch had informed me that Bombelli lost it in the grass after adjusting some harness, a fatal loss, poor fellow, to him, it is seldom that any article so dropped escapes the quick-sighted natives to whom the surface of the earth is in fact as legible as a newspaper, so accustomed are they to read it in any traces left thereon, the events of the day. For the lost pistol, Burnett, who had charge of the arms, carefully sought as he felt a commendable and soldier-like desire to carry back to Sydney in good order our full complement of firearms. A lonely cart and two dead bodies, covered by the remains of Mr Finch's equipment, now marked the spot where we had formerly encamped. The two bullocks were no longer to be seen. The natives had revisited the spot since Mr Finch last quitted it and had carried off the remainder of the flour and great part of the canvas of the tents. The bodies were covered by a pile of various articles such as saddles, bows and yokes, harness, pack saddles, trunks, canisters, etc. The savages appeared to have been ignorant of the use of sugar, tea and tobacco, articles which the Aborigines nearer to our colony prefer to all other things. A large canister of tea had been emptied on the ground. A similar canister, more than half full of sugar, lay on its side so that its contents were still good, the lids of both canisters having been carried off. The whole stock of tobacco lay scattered about the ground and destroyed by the late rains. A spade, a steel yard and a hammer were left, although iron had been so desirable that one of the iron pins of the cart had been carried away. The two hair trunks belonging to Mr Finch and which contained his clothes, papers, etc., remained on the heap, uninjured and unopened, while the truly savage plunders had carried off apparently as stuff for clothing the canvas of the tent. From these circumstances, it was obvious that the murderers were quite unacquainted with colonists or their habits. The bodies were now in, most, in the most offensive state of putrefaction, and already so much decay that we could not even distinguish the persons except by the smaller frame of Bombelli. The body of the bullock driver lay under the cart where he had been accustomed to sleep, that of Bonbelli about four feet from it. No dress appeared to have been on either, besides the shirts, and one side of each skull was so shattered that fragments lay about on removing the remains into a grave. It seemed most probable that the natives had stolen upon them when asleep. I ought to state here that Mr Finch, on first leaving the settled districts, had five men, two of whom having behaved ill, had been obliged to send back to the colony. Having interred the bodies, we loaded the carts with such articles as still remained serviceable, and yoking it up to three of the horses which the men had brought, we returned towards the camp. By the smoke which arose from various parts, we perceived that the Aborigines were watching our proceedings, and I considered it desirable, under all circumstances, to return to the camp that night, although the distance was 17 miles. On approaching these remains of Mr Finch's party in the morning, I had proceeded under cover of the scrubs mm -hmm. that the natives might be as little as possible aware of our movement or intentions. We now returned towards our camp along the original track, as being a direction not only more favourable for the cart but more expeditious. 
for as the route was already marked, no further care respecting the line was necessary, and I could thus devote my whole attention to the natives who were about. When we reached the head of the highest slope, near the place whence I first saw these ponds, a dense column of smoke ascended from Mount Fraser, and subsequently other smokes arose, extending in a telegraphic line far to the south along the base of the mountains, and thus communicating to the natives who might be upon our route homewards the tidings of our return. These signals were distinctly seen by Mr White at the camp, as well as by us. The sun soon set after we passed Mount Fraser, but fortunately not until the woods no longer intervened between us and the camp. On that naked horizon we might hope at length to see our fires, although we were then nine miles distant, and I knew the bearing sufficiently well to be able to travel by compass nearly in their direction. A few bushes on the outline of the horizon were long useful as precluding the necessity for repeated references to the compass, but a dark cloud arose beyond and obscured the western horizon. Just then a good old pack horse named Rattler knocked up, and I reluctantly gave orders to leave him behind, when Whiting the old guardsman volunteered to remain with him and bring him on after he had rested. This, in the face of both hunger and danger, I duly appreciated and long remembered to his advantage. We soon after came upon some surface water and refreshed out the tired animals. Precisely at eight o'clock, as I had arranged with Mr White, a rocket ascended from the camp, and to us was just perceptible like a needle in the remote distance. That little column of fire, however, was enough to assure the fatigued men, and it enabled me to mark two stars in the same direction, which guided me on towards the camp. At length we could distinguish the large fires made there for the same purpose, and by ten o'clock we had terminated the arduous labours of the day, and I had the satisfaction to find that the party under Mr White had remained undisturbed. Two more rockets were afterwards sent up for the guidance of Whiting, and a huge fire was also kept burning until at 3am the old soldier arrived safe, bringing up the old horse, which, after resting a while and drinking at the water, found by Whiting as well as us, had come on tolerably well. February 19. Notwithstanding the fatigues undergone by a portion of the party, we were all glad to quit the muddy camp this morning, and we continued to travel towards the old route on the same bearing by which we had approached it. The ground was still soft, rendering the draft heavy, and our homeward progress was accordingly very slow. At length, however, we reached the ponds, which we recognised as the same we had formerly crossed about a mile and a half more to the eastward, and I now named them Welcome Ponds. To these salutary waters, Mr Finch had fallen back, when unable to find any at Mount Fraser. We this day traversed an open plain, extending the whole way between the two camps. I observed as we proceeded a hill to the southward, the summit of which was equally clear of timber as the plains, above which its height was 80 or 100 feet. The sides were grassy and smoothed. I named it Mount Mud, in the commemoration of the difficulties with which we had contended in its neighbourhood. Welcome ponds, on which we now encamped, had been converted by the late rain into a running brook. The slopes of the ground on its banks were so anomalous that, but for the actual current of the water to the westward and the situation of the hills on the eastward, whence alone it could come, I must have remained in doubt as to the direction of the fall of the waters in that channel. The banks of these watercourses on the plains, as I have elsewhere observed, are the highest part of the ground. This ground appeared here to rise towards the west along the banks of the brook, which, flowing also westward, seemed to run uphill. The soil was mixed with pebbles of vesicular trap, probably amygdaloid, with the kernels of decomposed and containing particles of olivine. 
There were also pebbles of a quartzose conglomerate and others of decomposed periphery, the base consisting of granular felspar with crystals of common felspar. It is not improbable that good millstones might be obtained from the range of Nandawa. The grass was, fortunately, much better here than at the last camp. February 20. During the night, a heavy thunderstorm broke over us and was accompanied by so much rain that the ground was too soft in the morning for us to proceed. I accordingly halted till one o'clock. We then succeeded in crossing the brook immediately above our encampment and continued first southward to avoid a scrub and then almost east. On a portion of open ground, the progress of the party was slow enough, but in an open kind of scrub, where I hoped to have got on better, the ground proved to be still less favourable for waters lay in hollows, which at any season might have been soft and were then impassable. The cattle at length could draw no longer, the cart sinking to the axles by attaching a double team, however, and drawing each cart successively forward to our intended camp, we effected the transit of the hole by sunset and fixed our home for the night on the hard bank of a gravel beside meadow ponds and to my no small satisfaction on the line of our former track. We had travelled five miles only, but to hit this point, which was exactly at an angle of that route, was a desideratum with me. Desideratum? And we had now before us a line of marked trees leading homeward and relieving me from all further anxiety as to the line to be pursued. The ponds were now united by a stream of beautifully clear water and were so far different from those we had left that morning in which the water had a clay or muddy colour. During this day's journey we killed a snake, measuring seven feet in length and eight inches in diameter, and the fat of this reptile was considered a useful addition to a dish at dinner. In the watercourse, we found pebbles similar to those at the last camp. February 21. Proceeding at an early hour, we now traversed with satisfaction the scrub through which, during the very hot weather, we had formerly been obliged to cut our way. The ground beyond it was soft and the labour distressing to our jaded cattle. About 3pm, we encamped on a rising ground where some water which had fallen during the late rains had lodged in hollows, in sufficient abundance to satisfy our wants. In respect to this essential article, indeed, the late rains had supplied enough to leave me more at liberty in the choice of camps. From the site selected here, the view of the mountains to the eastward was rather fine, especially as the ground sloped towards them. Behind us, on the west, was a dense scrub, not the most pleasant of neighbours, when savage natives were about. February 22. We traversed with much difficulty the plains where we had on our advance halted to make certain repairs, and we next entered the scrub where I had presented the tomahawk to the young native as a reward for the confidence with which he had approached us when the rest of his tribe fell back. We had not advanced far beyond the scene of that interview when I perceived a number of natives running before me along our line of route. I hastened after them when I perceived several men advancing to meet me. They halted in a rather formal manner at some distance, and I next came upon their spears, which, with a stone hatchet, had been laid across our track. There I alighted from my horse and proceeded slowly towards them on foot, inviting them as well as I could to come forward, and which they accordingly did. Three men met me at halfway. One of them seemed rather old, another was very stout and fat, and the third had an intelligent countenance and thin person, but was so thickly covered with the most raised sort of scarifications that I was half inclined to think that the slightness of his frame might be partly owing to the lacerations which covered it. 
Other members of the tribe soon joined us, and as the carts by this time had arrived at the spears on the ground, I took one up and explained to the natives that the wheels passing over would break them. Still, these strange people would not remove them, and I concluded that this prostration of their weapons was intended to make us acquainted with their friendly disposition towards us. They began to call loudly to their djinns, who stood assembled under a large tree at some distance, and we plainly understood the invitation of the men to visit these females. But our party was much more disposed to fight than make love, and I had little doubt that by throwing a single spear the natives would have pleased them more, than by all the civility they were evidently anxious to show us. So desirous they were at the time to avenge the late murders, when even the odour of corruption still hung like a pestilence about the articles recovered from the plundered camp. The natives, however, perhaps out of pure cordiality, in return for our former disinterested kindness, persisted in their endeavours to induce us very particularly to their women, They ordered them to come up, divested of their cloaks and bags, and placed them before us. Most of the men appeared to possess two, the pair in general, consisting of a fat, plump gin and one much younger. Each man placed himself before his gins and bowing forward with a shrug, the hands and arms being thrown back, pointing to each gin as if to say, Take what you please. The females on their part evinced no apprehensions, but seemed to regard us, beings of a race so different, without the slightest indication of either fear, aversion, or surprise. It looks were rather expressive of a ready acquiescence in the proffered kindness of the men. And when at length they brought a sapal nymph via V to Mr. White, I could preserve my gravity no longer, and throwing the spears aside, I ordered the bullock drivers to proceed. I endeavoured to explain by gestures that two of our party had been killed by their countrymen and pointed to the place so that, as Mr. White thought, they understood me. On seeing the party again in motion, most of the natives disappeared, one or two lingered behind trees and then it occurred to me to offer them a small iron tomahawk in exchange for that of stone which lay behind the spears i therefore sent dawkins to them to make a bargain if he could but on going back he saw most of the natives running off with the spears in their hands and could not make his object understood by those who remained the earth in this part of our old track had become very soft and although the surface undulated it possessed a peculiar rottenness so that where the upper crust bore me on horseback the carts would suddenly sink to the axle the horses at length also began to sink through the surface crust and were approaching we were approaching a hollow which appeared likely to be still worse when our wheel carriages at length got quite fast and then recollecting some gestures of the natives i understood their meaning They had pointed forward along where we were pursuing, holding the hands as high as the breast as if to show how deep, and then to the eastwards as if to say that direction would be better. We were now forced to retrace our steps, and in following the course indicated by the natives, we made a slight detour and travelled over hard ground into our old track again. This useful information given so kindly by these natives convinced me that no treachery was intended, although among the men who had so recently buried their comrades, I believe a different opinion prevailed. No other impediment obstructed our progress through these woods, which consisted of the ironbark species of eucalyptus, and we soon emerged on the plains, where the surface being composed of clay was found much the best for travelling upon at that season, and altogether free from that rottenness which in some parts of the forest had this day so greatly impeded the party. We encamped on the ground which we had formerly, formerly occupied at Lobster Pond. During this and the two preceding days, the party was tormented by a very large species of mosquito, which had not been previously seen on this journey. 
They were most troublesome when the morning was growing warm. Their colour was grey and they had thin black parallel stripes on the back. We met these tormenting insects on first entering the woods from the plains. During the drought, a smaller species had been troublesome at night, as I had frequently experienced when obliged to sit sextant in hand awaiting the passage of the stars near the meridian. I found that burning a little bullock dung in my tent cleared it of all mosquitoes for the night. February 23. This morning we were early en route in hopes to reach the Namoy. I took care to find again the tree which bore the yellow flowers as it certainly was rare, being the only one of the description seen throughout the journey. Now, however, the flowers had given place to young fruit, which were the size of an acorn and grew on a long hooked stalk. In crossing the low ridge which separates the plains from the Namoy, we again fell through very soft ground. It occurred chiefly on the sides of slopes and in the midst of forests of eucalypti, where I should have expected the hardest kind of surface. We made the Namoy, however, in good time, this being the first of our former stages, which we had been able to accomplish in one day since the wet weather commenced. The late rains had produced no change in the waters of this river, a circumstance showing perhaps that less had fallen in the southeast than on the plains where we had been. None of the kind of fish that we most prized, Christus Pili, could now be caught in this river, though abundance of that which men commonly call brim, a very coarse but firm fish which makes a groaning noise when taken out of the water, and here it may be observed that the colour of the cod or peel's perch was lighter than that of eelfish, tenundus, tendanus, darker in the Corolla River than in any other river. A fine, uh, sorry, February 24, a fine cool morning, I attempted to cut off a slight detour in our old track by travelling nearer to the course of the Namoy, but a soft and swampy flat soon compelled me to seek the former wheel marks and even to proceed still nearer the base of the hills for the sake of hard ground. We next travelled westward of our line, thus crossing an excellent tract of country, and without further impediment we arrived on Malls Creek, which we crossed with all our carts and equipment to encamp on the left bank. The limpid stream was not much, if at all, augmented. From this side of the country, now that the smoke no longer obscured the horizon, the outline of the Great Range was very bold, a lofty and very prominent pyramid crowning the most elevated southwestern extremity and forming as important a point for the survey of the country to the southwest as Mount Riddle presents for that towards the northwest. This point I named Mount Forbes after my friend Captain Forbes, 39th Regiment then commanding the mounted police in New South Wales. The Great Range presents three principal heads, of which Mount Riddle and Forbes are the northern and southern, the central or highest being Mount Lindsay. February 25. The party moved to the former encampment at Bulabalakit. In passing near the place where we set up our tents on quitting the canvas boats, I sought my buried specimens of rocks and found that for once I had been able to hide so the natives could not find. The treasure, however, consisted only of stones. My notes addressed to Mr Finch, which I had hidden in the trees as we advanced, escaped their notice. Neither had the provisions left for the use of my unfortunate courier Bombelli at the camp we now again occupied, being suffered to remain where we had cautiously buried them. All the planks of sawn timber left at our old saw pit had been collected in a heap and partly burnt. From the hill over the camp, 
The view of the horizon was at length unobscured by smoke, and I found it possible to connect the distant points of the Nandawa range with those between us and the colony. Many hills which I had not before seen to the eastward were also visible. A heavy thunder shower fell in the afternoon, and it was accompanied by a violent gale of wind, which blew down Mr. White's tent and very materially injured mine. February 26. The party continued towards the portion of the Namoy at which we first arrived on advancing into those desolate regions, and we passed our old encampment beside the barber's stockyard near Tangulda. After travelling about eight miles, we met Mr. Brown of Wallamore and his stockman on horseback. They had followed our track thus far on the information they had received from the native Mr. Brown and were proceeding to examine the barber's stockyard. They informed us that our native guide confessed to them that his dread of the savage natives had induced him to return. The men caught several large cod or peels perch, one of which weighed 13 pounds. The river remained unswollen. February 27. As we continued our homeward journey, Mr. Brown overtook us. He had found various brands of cattle on portions of hide about the stockyard. He assured me I should find no water at my old encampment where I intended again to halt, for that he possessed that he had passed the previous night there without water. I, however, had the satisfaction to find as much as ever on the rocky bed of the watercourse where it is not so liable to be absorbed. Having arrived early at this spot, I again ascended the range and proceeded along its crest to one of the highest summits named Waroga. From this point, I could at length recognise Mount Morala, Oxy's Peak, Moan and other pinnacles of the Liverpool range, and with which I now connected my last station upon the Namwe. From Idi, a hill near the camp, I also obtained in returning some observations and one great and one angle of great value with Mount Forbes, much required for the purpose of mapping the country we had explored. On the side of Waroga, we saw a very large black wallaroo, which sat looking at us with apparent curiosity. Scurvy now began to affect the party. We endeavoured to counteract the progress of this disease by plentiful issues of lime juice and some portable vegetable soups, but of the latter we had but a very small supply. Dysentery did not alarm as much, for the doctor generally set the patients to rights in 8 to 40 hours with something he found in his medicine chest. February 28. The morning was fine. When we again saw the plains of Malabar on passing through the gorge under Mount Idir, as we travelled across the plains on which the young verdure, first offspring of the late rain, already began to shoot, four emus were observed quietly feeding at no great distance, apparently heedless of our party. I approached them with my rifle on a steady old horse and found that the large quadruped, however strange a sight, did not in the least alarm these gigantic birds even when I rode close up. I alighted, levelled my rifle over the saddle and fired but missed, as I presumed, for the bird merely performed a sort of pirouette and then recommenced feeding with others as before. I had no means of reloading without returning to the party, but I was content with discovering that these birds might be thus approached on horseback, for in general the first appearance of men, although miles distant, puts them at once to their speed, which, on soft, loose earth, perhaps surpasses that of a horse. The ford of Wallenborough was now our only separation from the Christian world. That once passed, we might joyfully bid adieu to pestilence and famine, the lurking savage in every peril of flood and field. 
Under the sense of perfect security once more and relieved from the anxiety inseparable from such a charge, every object within the territory of civilised man appeared to me tinged in couleur de rose. The peel was crossed without difficulty and on the following morning, leaving the party in charge of Mr White, I commenced my ride homeward through the woods, followed only by my man Brown, and on reaching Sejin Ho, I forwarded the government my official dispatch announcing the return of the party and the result of my expedition. On my arrival at Sydney, I learnt that the life of the convict clerk had been spared and that my report of the course of the Peel and the Namoy coinciding as notified in my first dispatch with his description of these rivers had encouraged the government to place more confidence in his story. It was now obvious, however, that the account of his travels beyond Tangulda was little else than pure invention. I examined him in the hulk at Sydney in the presence of the acting governor and was quite satisfied that he had never been beyond the Nandawa range. Nevertheless, he persisted in his story of the river and a party of mounted police commanded by Captain Forbes of the 39th Regiment repaired to the Namway in search of a gang of bushrangers, but not without hopes of finding the kinder. That active and enterprising officer reached the Gwydi in latitude 29 degrees 27 37 south long, 150 degrees 5 east. Tracing upwards its course or a branch of this river, he arrived near the western extremity of the Nandawa range and, ex- and ascended the hill named by him Mount Albura. Being accompanied by a native of Bathurst, he, Bathurst, he ascertained that the Aboriginal name of the singular-looking hill forming the western extremity of that range was Kurada, the name of the barber's burning mountain, and his plains of Ballyrand were found to be those crossed by my party in returning from Snodgrass Lagoon. Kurada from the plains. This journey of discovery proved that any large river flowing to the northwest must be far to the northward of latitude 29 degrees. All the rivers south of that parallel and which had been described by the barber as falling into such a river as the Kinder, have been ascertained to belong wholly to the basin of the Darling. The country we traversed was very eligible in many parts for the formation of grazing establishments, as a proof of which it may be mentioned that flocks of sheep soon covered the plains of Malabar, and that the country around the barber's stockyard has ever since the return of the expedition been occupied by the cattle of Sir John Jamison. At a still greater distance from the settled district, much valuable land will be found around the base of the Nandawa range. The region beyond the mountains or between them and the Gwydi is beautiful and in the vicinity or within sight of the high land, it is sufficiently well watered to become an important addition to the pastoral capabilities of New South Wales. The end. <laughs>